We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Good morning. It is good to have you here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, hope you're enjoying a beautiful day as well. Those of you in Boca Raton, every day is beautiful down there at the Trinity Church of God. If you're watching online from whatever beach you're watching from, we're happy for you. But we have a beautiful day here, and I'm excited as we start this brand new series, Jesus is the Subject. Some of us were raised in church, some of us were raised in Sunday school, and in Sunday school in the churches we were raised in, Jesus was always the answer. But we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus is the subject, and for the next 15 weeks, we're going to be going through the book of Mark. We're going to jump into that today, and I want to encourage you to be reading that on your own because, again, every time we study a book, there is no way that we can even come close to covering all of it in the weekend services. But we're going to be looking at Jesus is the subject. He is our true north. He is where we fix our eyes. It's on Jesus. And I just want to jump right into this whole deal today. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, we talked a little bit about this last week. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. That Jesus is the origin, Jesus is the source, Jesus is our focal point, and it's in Christ that we live and we have our life. It's in Christ that we have our salvation, and Christ is our reward, not only here and now, but for all of eternity. And when Paul writes to this church, again, a little bit of uh, going back to last week, he writes to this church in Corinth, and as you remember, Corinth is this, this kind of this hub, this crossroads of Greece. And in both of the letters that we have that he wrote to the church in Corinth, he quotes an Old Testament scripture, the same scripture, which kind of implies to me that maybe it was something that that he had taught before while he was with them. And maybe he just reminds him, you know, this was a theme that I talked about. And maybe when he quotes this portion of this scripture, he's talking about the whole passage that would draw them back to that. Keep in mind, again, that Corinth was in Greece. It was the center of, of philosophy and knowledge and wisdom, all this, all this wisdom they had. It was also the, the epicenter of health and strength and athleticism where they had these games, the Isthmian Games and the Olympic Games and these athletes and health and strength, this physical strength and power. And it was at a crossroads uh, economically with the, the commerce that came and went. So it was a very strong economy. And I think that it's in the, the fact of the culture that he's speaking to that he points him to this passage in the Old Testament. And here's the interesting thing to me. I think of the parallels for us in the United States. That we are, we are uh, a, co a country that has access to education and some of the, the latest technology. We have wisdom and knowledge and all these things. 
We are in a country where there is better food available, better water available, better health care available than the vast majority of our planet. So we have health and we have strength. We are uh, some amongst the wealthiest people in the whole world. So we have all this wealth. And so there's a similarity between us and ancient Corinth in some of these respects. And so I think maybe even if the Apostle Paul were to write us a letter, he might, he might quote the same, the same passage out of Jeremiah where it says this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. And this is the part that he quotes. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. This is our goal for us as a church, that we would understand and know the Lord, that we would understand and know him better, and that understanding of Christ and the knowledge of this God through Christ would transform our lives. That's the goal of this series, as we walk through Mark and look at Jesus as a subject, that we would understand and know him more. So today as we get into this book of Mark, if you have your Bible or your phone or tablet, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to start off. That's a good place to start if you're starting at the beginning of a book. So we're going to start there today. Before we get to that, I want to take just a minute to set up some of the backdrops so that we will know as we're going into this for the next 15 weeks what this is all about. I want to talk a little bit about the book of Mark and its author before we get into it. For some of you, this is review. For some of you, you're going to love it. For some of you, you just need to bear with us. We'll get to Mark here in a minute. So Mark is in the New Testament. It's a, it's a set of four documents that we refer to as the Gospels. We'll talk about that in a minute. And these four Gospels at the very part, front part of your New Testament, two-thirds of the way through the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these guys are often referred to as the four evangelists. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. And what's interesting is while Mark is the second one that's listed chronologically, Matthew, Mark, most would agree that Mark was probably the first gospel that was written, that it was written in roughly A.D. 65, 65. And so what's interesting, and this one's not going to be on the test. This is just for some of you who like these kind of details. The first three gospels are referred to as the synoptic gospels. Don't worry about taking notes on this. The synoptic gospels in that they have a lot in common. They come from the same direction. They kind of tell the same story. In fact, they tell some of the same stories. In fact, some of them are told verbatim. And most people believe that as Mark wrote his gospel first, that Matthew and Luke borrowed from his gospel as they wrote theirs. Not plagiarism, just not needing to reinvent the wheel. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, possibly. And in these documents, these things called the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're a biography, kind of a, a, a literary documentary of the life of Jesus from different perspectives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of look from one area, and, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke look from one area, and John kind of comes at it from a different angle with some different details from different stories that the others, did something just fly in my ear? Look at that, it's a fly, it just flew in my ear. That is the weirdest thing. It doesn't happen often. Okay. <laughs> it is good to have you here. Thank you for your grace, I don't know. I, I showered in everything, I still attract flies. What was I talking about? Documents about Jesus' life or something of that nature. So we have these Gospels, and, um, and, and so Mark, 
Mark, um, though in the gospel of Mark, it never says, hey, Mark wrote this. It is widely agreed that Mark was the author of this gospel. So you think, okay, well, who is this guy, Mark? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but for most of you, I think, if we said, who are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You would say, well, they were, 12, they were part of 12, Jesus' 12 disciples. And for most of my life, I would have said the same thing. So I'm not trying to shame or embarrass you. But to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were part of 12, Jesus' 12 disciples is only half correct. Matthew was and John was, but Mark and Luke were not a part of the 12. They weren't a part of those disciples. Now, if you're saying, how did I not know that? Let me just tell you, I was a pastor's kid, grew up in church, went to Bible school. I didn't know that until this week, but I figured it out. No, I'm just, in, in my 20s, I, I was like, oh, wow, okay, it's an amazing thing. So who is this guy, Mark? Oh, let's talk a little bit about Mark, about who he is. What we find out about him, first of all, is through his mom, he has a mom who is mentioned once in the New Testament. Now, if a woman is mentioned in the New Testament, she ought to have a New Testament name. The primary New Testament woman name is Mary. Her name was Mary. Now, let's not get confused. We're not talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we're not talking about Mary, the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, and we're not talking about Mary Magdalene, and we're not talking about Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. It's the other Mary. <laughs> Mary number five, okay? And this is what we know about Mary number five is that she is most likely a widow. She is, it, it appears to be wealthy. And she is a, a, a key player in the early church in the New Testament church. And the reason we know that is when it refers to her, it doesn't refer to a husband, which probably in that context meant that she was a widow. The wealthy part is that she not only owns a home, but she owns a large home, large enough that the church gathers at her home, and she's wealthy enough to have a servant girl named Rhoda. So you have Mary and Rhoda. They later became the Mary Tyler Moore Show, but that's totally different. It's non-biblical. So she has a servant named Rhoda. She has this large home, and the church gathers in her home. She's a, she's a part of this early church. And in fact, you can read this on your own later that in Acts chapter 12, they are yet again gathered at her house. And Peter, who's been incarcerated, is met by an angel. This is a fascinating story. Don't read it during my sermon, but later. The angel comes to Peter, and Peter thinks he's dreaming. He thinks he's having a vision. This angel leads him out of jail. And he's like, this is the greatest dream ever. And then he realized, this isn't a dream. This is real. I ought to go and tell the church. So he goes to where the church, it seems, frequently gathers the home of Mary. He goes to her house. It's locked because they're scared. He knocks on the door. Rhoda comes to the door, and he says, it's Peter. She's so excited. She goes back in and tells everybody and leaves him locked out in the cold. You keep on knocking, but you can't come in. He just stays out there. When Peter realizes this is not a dream, this is reality, it says this in Acts chapter 12. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. John, not John the Baptist, not James and John, not John the father of Peter. There's so many Johns that said, let's just call him Mark. Now, sometimes he's referred to as John Mark, all right? But this is... Mark, and, and here he is in this home with his mother. He's probably younger, still living at home with his mom. And it appears that one of their regular guests in their home, or one of their regular people that comes to their home, is Simon Peter. Hold on to that thought, and we'll come back to that later. Now, Mark also has a cousin. 
He has a cousin who is a prominent player in the New Testament church. His cousin is from the island of Cyprus. He's a Levite, and his name is Joseph. Don't be confused. Not Joseph in the Technicolor, you know, dream coat or whatever that one was. Not Joseph, the father of Jesus. Not Joseph of Arimathea. The other Joseph. Joseph number four. See, this can be very confusing. Joseph number four. And he's an amazing man. He's a man of God. He's a very generous man. And he's a very positive man. In fact, he's so positive that the disciples give him a nickname. And the nickname literally means son of encouragement. Could you imagine living a life in such a way that people just refer to you as you are like the child, you are the embodiment of encouragement. So his name is, any, any guesses on this one? Barnabas, Bar, son of, Nabus, none of us know what that means, but it means encouragement. <laughs> Barnabas, we say, oh, I've heard of Barnabas. That's Mark's cousin, an older cousin. And, and when Paul writes to uh, the, the letter to Colossians, he says, my fellow prisoners, Prisoner Aristarchus, don't worry about him. We're not even going to talk about him, okay? Sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So now Paul is, is talking about Mark here and Barnabas. Barnabas is his cousin. When Paul and Barnabas go on their fish, first missionary journey, they take Barnabas's young cousin, Mark, with them. There's a little issue halfway through that one, but later on, Paul, you know, says, man, Mark is such a, he's a co-worker. He's a help for me later in ministry. So you think about this guy, Mark. His mom is Mary. He has Simon Peter in his home frequently. His cousin is Barnabas, and he goes on missionary journeys with Paul. An amazing thing. One more little detail, and this one's kind of speculative. This one is like a little bit of a rabbit trail. There, this one's a little bit out there. But something, another detail about possibly about Mark is that in Mark's gospel, he includes a small, what seems to be random, you know, uh, unattached detail in his gospel that none of the other gospel writers include. It happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, right when Jesus is being arrested, the day before he gets crucified. And Mark, in his gospel, he's the only one that includes this detail, he writes these things, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, his PJs, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the first wardrobe malfunction that happens, and it set off a fad in the 70s called streaking. So people, some think that Mark is referring to himself here, that he decides, I'm going to write my naked fanny into the gospel one way or another, and it will be in my gospel because no one else even includes this. Now, that may or may not be the case, but he, like, he writes this in here. We talked about the fact that the first time we hear about Mark is in his mom's home, Mary's home, when Peter comes. And, and he's got a cousin, Barnabas, and he's connected with Paul, but it appears that maybe there was a, a real, like a a father-son discipleship mentoring relationship that Peter had with this young Mark. Peter comes into their home, sees this young man who doesn't have a father, and he just kind of invests in his life. Later, Peter would write these words in 1 Peter, she who is in Babylon, he's either talking about the church or his wife, we're not sure, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Some of you are familiar that Paul had what he referred to as his son, 
Timothy. It was a spiritual father relationship that he poured into this young man. And it appears that Peter has the same kind of relationship with Mark, so much so that he refers to him as his son, this spiritual mentoring, this fathership, this discipleship, this, this pouring into this young man, Mark. With that, Peter, little side note, Peter is a Galilean fisherman, and it may have been that Growing up as a fisherman in Galilee, he didn't need a lot of education. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, it says they noticed that Peter was unschooled. To what degree, we don't know, but he doesn't have this formal education that's impressive. He may have been illiterate, possibly. Mark, coming from a wealthy family in Jerusalem, probably had the benefit of a formal education. So now they come together as Peter is mentoring and discipling and spiritually fathering this young man. This young man helps him out. And it is widely agreed that Mark is the secretary or the translator for Peter. So when we get to the gospel of Peter, most scholars believe it's not Mark telling of his experience. It's Peter telling Mark what he experienced, his firsthand eyewitness account, and Mark is the one writing it down, and he is, he is the author. Are we clear on all of that? Okay, sorry to give you all those details. So we're going to be looking at this book, most likely the, the uh, experience of Peter written down by Mark so that we can see that Jesus is the subject. Now, as I said before, I wanna strongly, strongly encourage you to read through the book of Mark at least once in this 15 weeks. There's only 16 chapters, maybe, maybe quicker, but read through the book of Mark because there's so much more in there. And one more thing I wanna encourage you to do. Anytime we look at a book, I almost always say this. If you'll go to this website with the Bible Project, it is well worth a nine and a half minute investment of your time, even this afternoon, to watch and understand an overview of this book of Mark. Here's this, this uh, website. It's also in your link. If you're taking notes on the app, it's down at the bottom of those notes. Don't click on it now, please. Um, and if you're like, ah, I don't know how to do all that, if you will just go to Google and type in these three words, read scripture Mark, it will pull up this video. You can click on it, nine and a half minutes. Highly recommend you watch this. It will help you understand the context of the book that we're going to spend 15 weeks in. Now, the subject is not Mark, and the subject is not Peter. The subject is Jesus. So are we ready? Yep. All right. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, starts off this way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I just want to tell you, I could spend the rest of our time today on this verse alone. There is so much in here. And, and there's so much in the, the 15 verses that we're going to try to cover today. I'm going to have to skip over large swaths, this whole section that we're going to look at today could be a series in and of itself. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You'll notice in Mark that he says, let's start at the beginning, and he doesn't start with the Christmas narrative. He doesn't talk about that. He says, no, we're going to start with the beginning of the ministry. Now, there was 30 years earlier, the angels that came and said, this is good news, the great joy that will be for all the people. He says, we're not going to start there. Well, let's start of what they were talking about. Let's skip those 30 years and get right to it. And it was even before that, because 700 years before that, Isaiah would say, unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. He says, yeah, that's been going on, but let's get right to it, the beginning. And what we will see is, he might even point back to, let's talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but let's get to the beginning of the gospel. Now, I want to spend just a few minutes on this word gospel. 
Because many of us have heard that word, like these four gospels, or the gospel. You know, we grew up with this word gospel. And I want to talk about this word. Um, before I do, how many of you ever watched Gilligan's Island at all? Even reruns, even now, it's still on MeTV, okay. So if the professor was talking to the skipper, he might say, you and Gilligan, say that phrase. You say it one more time. You and Gilligan. The Greek word gospel is you and Gillian, minus one G. I'm just trying to help you learn Greek. Followers, this is the only way I can learn these words. So the Greek word gospel is you and Gillian. And what's interesting about this word you and Gillian is that it can be translated gospel and it can also be translated good news. So when we get to verse 14 and 15, you'll see that twice it says good news. It's the same word, you and Gillian. So if you said, preach the good news of the gospel, that's redundant. That's like saying, preach the euangelion of the euangelion. And it's where we get our word evangelism. It comes from this word euangelion. And an evangelist is a euangelistus, all right? Which means that an evangelist is a, is a gospeler, is a good newser. Okay, so we just kind of clear on that. So all these words are kind of, they come together here. So these four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're good newsers, they're gospelers. That's why they get the name evangelist, because they bring this gospel, the good news. Now the word gospel, this you and, and, and Gillian, and Gillian, was not originally a church word. It wasn't a religious word. In fact, there's a Roman inscription that's, that has almost verbatim here, these words, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Like, here's the good news of Caesar Augustus. And, it, and then it goes on to talk about his birth and his coronation and his reign. The word here, gospel, good news, is news of an event that changes everything in a meaningful way. So when uh, Caesar Augustus becomes the emperor, it changes everything in a meaningful way. Here's another one. In the year 490 BC, Greece is invaded by Persia. And there's all these battles going on and there's this fear that Greece is gonna be overthrown by the Persians. And there's a battle that takes place in a, in a Greek town called Marathon. And after this battle, they send a guy, anyone know his name? Phidippides. They send a guy named Phidippides to run from Marathon to Athens as an evangelist, as a good newser, as a gospeler, to bring the gospel, the good news. An event happened that changes everything in a meaningful way. Phidippides runs all the way and says, we have fought for you, we have won, you are no longer slaves, you are free. It's a beautiful thing. That's what gospel meant. Mark comes along and says, we're not talking about Caesar Augustus and some Roman empire, and we're not talking about some battle in Marathon or some runner that came in with that news. We're talking about the good news, the gospel, the euangelion of Jesus. And he's saying, hey, 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 Jesus is the subject. He doesn't say, this is the gospel according to, to Mark. He doesn't say, this is the gospel remembered by Peter and recorded by Mark. He says, no, no, this is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the subject. And I just want a little side note here. Whenever we talk about Jesus, if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. Follow that? When we talk about Jesus, if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. And he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, not Jesus the Nazarene, not Jesus the Galilean, not Jesus the carpenter or the carpenter's son, Jesus 
Christ. Now, for some of you who are maybe new to this, that's not his last name. It's a title. It means Messiah, anointed one, savior. And for most of the Jewish people, they had in mind a, a, a military leader who would come and rescue them from the, you know, the, the Roman Empire and overthrow that and, and lead them into victory and all that. They didn't fully understand Isaiah 53 and the suffering uh, Savior. But he is the Messiah. And Mark's saying he's far better than a military ruler. He's far better than a general. He's the son of God. He is deity. And this is important because in Mark's gospel, he uses this phrase, son of God, nine times. He says, let's be really clear. What we're talking about, this beginning of this gospel, is that God breaks into human history. God breaks into history. God comes, and it's a good thing. God comes to rule. God comes to reign. God comes to rescue. God comes to renew everything. And it's what the prophets have talked about. It's the fulfillment of what we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. And so Mark continues on along that line. Verse two, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. He actually quotes Malachi and Isaiah, but he just gives a uh, you know, shout out to Isaiah. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's actually from Malachi. But then this one's from Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Then he says, hey, hey listen, there is this one that is coming. And it goes twice, it says, prepare, prepare. Saying, get ready, get ready. You've been waiting for this. It's getting warm, it's getting hotter, you're getting close. The waiting is almost over. Get ready for this. You know, we just came through this, the Advent season, this, this season of expectation, of waiting, of longing. And it goes from Advent into Epiphany. Epiphany on January 6th, it's this, the revelation. He says, get ready because it's gonna happen here soon. Now, what's interesting in both of these with Malachi and, and Isaiah, as Mark points us out, is that it's not just getting ready for this, but before this, this good news, this gospel happens, he says there's a messenger, a voice of one calling in the desert. A messenger will come first. There will be a forerunner, not a Toyota. There will be a forerunner, someone that comes first before this gospel happens. And they had waited 400 years since Malachi had said these words. 700 years since Isaiah had said these words, and he came. It says, then John. So John came. Okay, not John Mark, not John of James and John, not John the father of Peter. Now we're talking about John the Baptist. And again, that's not his last name or his denominational affiliation. That's a description of what he did. So John comes, this man, John the Baptist, John came baptizing in the desert region. Man, I wish we had time. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to where all the religious leaders are. He goes out in the wilderness, goes out in the desert region by the Jordan River and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John comes and he says, listen, here's the way you need to get ready. You know, the prophet said, get ready, prepare. And I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. Here's how you get ready is that you get right. So he preaches this baptism of repentance, like, like be baptized and, and then repent. And, and the whole concept of repentance is to reverse the course. What John is saying is it's to turn from, to walk away, to leave, to stop, and to get, get right and to get ready. 
And it's an amazing thing, as John is doing this out in the wilderness, there's this mystique about this man, John, and the response is unbelievable. Keep in mind, keep in mind, everyone alive in that day had heard about prophets. They knew about the prophets. They had read the prophets. They were familiar with the message of the prophets, but none of them had ever seen, met, or heard a prophet. It had been 400 years since there had been a prophet. Things had grown quiet. And now there was this, could this be the prophet? And there was this thought that, could this be Elijah come back? And you can imagine how, how that would spark such interest. You remember Elijah, who never died. He was just taken away in a whirlwind. That Some believed that it would be Elijah that would come back because of some things that were written. And is this Elijah? This is a chance to go see Elijah. And, and, and this John, I mean, there was great mystique just with his appearance. I mean, the, the clothes he wore were unusual. The, the diet he had, bizarre. But on top of that, he had this Nazarite vow from birth, which meant he never, ever cut his hair. Imagine a 30-year-old man had never cut his hair, had never shaved, Chewbacca in its you know, fullness. There he is with all this hair, these dreadlocks, this beard, and here's this guy, and he preaches this fiery sermon. He is a prophet. They had never heard a prophet. They had read prophets, but the chance to go see this, and maybe they remember his birth that it was a miraculous birth of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were old when they had him. And they probably died when he was young and he was probably raised out in the desert by the group called the Essenes. And, and now he comes with this message and the response is enormous as people are flooding to hear, to see, to respond to his message. It says this, the whole, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. It's like there are just floods of people pouring out, leaving Jerusalem, going out to the desert, going down by the Jordan River, wanting to see this guy, wanting to hear this guy, wanting to be baptized by him. And as the religious leaders are in Jerusalem, they're seeing all their people leave. They're like, what is going on? They, in, in another gospel, you can read this, they decide to go and see him as well. And John, John, who has nothing to lose, he just like, speaks his hard truth to them, and he calls them basically a, a snake pit. He says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to escape the coming destruction? And he just lays into them. And here he is as he's preaching this message, and people are going out, and everyone's saying, this is, this is possibly Elijah, or could he be the Messiah? This is a big deal. And John comes along and says, wait, wait, wait. You think I'm a big deal. I am nothing. The big deal is coming. I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. I, I'm just this messenger. And this is what his message was. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we talked about this when we looked in John chapter one in December. And he said, he must increase, I must decrease. He greater than I. You don't, don't look at me. I'm not the big deal. He's the big deal. And later, you can read this in another gospel, when Jesus actually comes, he says to his own disciples, look, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you know what? Some of his disciples quit following him and started following Jesus. You know what that was? It was the Baptist going to Christ the King. And he says, and I'm okay with that. Because I want you to focus, Jesus is a subject. And here John's saying, hey, hey, don't you understand? Jesus is a subject. And then the unthinkable happens. 
Because news of this John the Baptist, who actually was a relative, probably a cousin of some degree of Jesus, news starts traveling to the north. And the unthinkable happens in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. To which I go, wait, 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 no, whoa, no, whoa, 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 wait, wait, no. This doesn't make any sense at all. Humanly, this, I can't comprehend this. John is baptizing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has never sinned. Why would he be baptized by John? It doesn't make any sense at all. And there's a whole sermon that I'm not gonna preach on when we obey God when it makes no human sense. Jesus says, you obey God because he says so, even if it doesn't make sense to you, you gotta trust God. But we're not gonna preach that one today. But he goes to be baptized not for the forgiveness of sins, but for the identity with sinners. That he says, I'm one of you, and I will actually become your sin. And he goes, and he is baptized. Jesus sets the example of baptism, and later, in his parting words, he says to his disciples, and he says to us, go into all the world, into all nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for 2,000 years, those who are followers after Jesus have followed his example in being baptized, have obeyed his command in baptizing and being baptized. And I want to just push a little pause here because for some of you, you love Jesus, you've been following him, you've never been baptized. And I just want to say, as a follower after Christ, an act of obedience, you need to be baptized. And here's the great thing is that in a month from now, at our, our February refuge service, here and in Skagit, there's an opportunity for you to be baptized. And you can, if you're in Skagit, you want to be baptized, talk with Pastor Brian. Uh, here in Bellingham, you can talk with Pastor Bill. You can go on the website. There'll be stuff in the link over the next couple of weeks. But some of you need to be baptized. You say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I've walked with him for years. Follow his example and obey his commands. You say, but it'd be weird because, I, I mean, I'm a small group leader, and I've done this and that. It doesn't matter. We want to rejoice with you as you follow his example, and obey his command. So I just want to kind of throw that out. For some of you, it's time for you to be baptized. And we would love it. We'll rejoice. We won't be going, that's weird. <laughs> she should have been baptized a long time. No, 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 no. It's a big great thing. So anyway. So, so Mark talks about the baptism of Jesus, and he does something that's brilliant. Because when he talks about the baptism of Jesus, he does two things, and one of them is easy to miss. One of them is that he simply reports on the current event, the thing that is happening with Jesus and John. But at the same time, underneath that, he reveals this cosmic event, something that God has been doing from the, from the foundations of the earth and is doing currently. Follow me on this one. Jesus goes to be baptized, goes from Nazareth down to, to the wilderness, goes to the Jordan River, and there's water. And John get ready, gets ready to baptize him, and they have a little bit of a skirmish on that one. John says, no, 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 and Jesus says, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's another gospel too. So Jesus is baptized, and as he's coming up out of the water, symbolic of something that would happen three years later when he comes up out of the grave, symbolic of a new beginning, a new day, a new life. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens tear open, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a 
dove. In our thinking, for those of us who are raised in the church, evangelical church especially, the concept of the Holy Spirit and dove just go together. They always have. You have a fish on your car. You have a dove over here. It's always that kind of deal. This was not a new, they didn't think, oh, dove, that must be like the Holy Spirit. That wasn't what they're thinking. But the Spirit descends on him like the dove, and then a voice from heaven says, you are my son whom I love and I am well pleased. Now here's an amazing thing. Later on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll get to this eventually, God says, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. Now it's personal. He says, you, he's speaking to Jesus. You are my son. You identified with them, I identify with you. And here's an amazing thing. While we believe there's one God, hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one, this is one of those rare times where you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three manifest at the same time. The Trinity is right there. That's the current event that takes place. Here's what we may not see underneath it, is that there's a, a, a cosmic event that goes back to Genesis chapter one. In the creation account, it says that, that the earth was formless and, and, and there was the deep and, and that the spirit hovered over the expanse of the water, hovered over the deep. That Hebrew word, that verb hovered, can also be translated fluttered. Now in the Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures, don't have to worry about all these details, I'm just giving them to you. In the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures, they translate Genesis 1 that says, and the spirit fluttered like a dove over the water. And the Spirit is there, and in the beginning, God, the Father, is there, and he speaks the logos, the word, and there is creation. There is God in his trinity, and is, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there at creation. And here's what's amazing, is that when he tells all this, when Mark tells all this, he is paralleling creation and recreation. That there are some things that happen in Genesis 1 through 3 that are happening again in the baptism of Christ. In the creation narrative, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all there at the same time. At the baptism of Christ, you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all there at the same time. At creation, you have God launching for the first time human history, and at baptism, God is launching the redemption of human history. At the creation, as God creates, he always finishes and says, it is good. He even creates Adam and says, it is good. And now he has Jesus come up from out of the water like this new creation. And he says, this is my son, sometimes referred to as the second Adam. And he says, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. In essence, it is good. You see the parallels that are happening here. Here was human, humanity started launch. Here's humanity being redeemed, being restored, being renewed, being restarted again. He says, what I did at the beginning, I'm starting over again now with the redemption because Jesus has come. This is the good news. And after all this happens in the creation event, when, when everything is good and God creates all this, the very next thing that happens is Adam and Eve are tempted. And after this baptism, when God says it's all good, the very next thing that happens, Jesus is tempted. And the temptations are identical. Both of them are tempted to eat. In the creation event, the devil says, surely you will not die. With Jesus, he says, throw yourself off the temple. The angels catch you. In essence, surely you will not die. In the garden, the enemy says to them, you will be like God. In the wilderness, the enemy says to Jesus, you can have all these kingdoms. You can be like God. 
And the essence of their temptation is leave the plan of God and be your own king. And it's the exact same temptation that every single one of us face. No matter what your temptation is, the essence of it is this. Leave the plan of God. Call your own shots. Make your own choice. Be your own king. Adam and Eve fell to the temptation, and it was bad news for everybody. Jesus stood up to the temptation, and it was you and Gillian. Good news for everybody. Isn't that so cool? Just amazing thing. All right, so fast forward. We don't spend any time talking about baptism. And, and see, this is why there's so many sermons in this passage. So John the Baptist gets in prison, and, and, and we go on. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, went back north, proclaiming the good news of God, that Jesus goes and he becomes a good newser. He becomes a gospeler. He becomes an evangelist of the euangelion of God. Jesus comes sharing this good news about God and he goes to the north and he tells people, this is good news, not just everyday news. This is like really good news. It's like history-shaping news. This is like life-altering news, like game-changing, difference-making, eternity-impacting, joy-inducing news about God. And Jesus goes, not offering good advice, but proclaiming good news. There's one thing to just offer some good advice, but to proclaim it means to announce it, to declare it, and here's the truth, it's good news whether you believe it or not. It's good news whether you accept it or not. It's good news whether you like it or not. It's good news whether you live in it or not. It's still good news. And Jesus goes proclaiming this good news, and here's the good news that he proclaimed, and this is really the essence of what he spends the next three years teaching. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. The euangelion. The time has come. Like the waiting is over. Like all this prepare the way and the one coming in the wilderness. The time has come. And it's not just someday in eternity. It's here and now. It's the reality. An event has happened that changes everything. God has broken into human history. And he says the same thing that John says, repent. Now, it's interesting. So many of us, whether we would articulate it or not, we hear the, hear the word repent, and it has such negative connotations to us. You don't have to agree with me. I just know that that's, for me, I hear the word repent, I'm like, oh, that means I have to give something up. And that's what John was saying. Turn from, walk away, leave it, stop. But I want you to look at this. Because Jesus is good news. And when Jesus says repent, maybe it's not negative at all. Maybe when Jesus says repent, he says repentance is follow Jesus towards something. Whereas John says turn away from something, Jesus said turn towards something. And John says walk away from something, Jesus says, walk right towards something. When John says, leave something, 
Jesus says, follow. And when John says, stop, Jesus says, let's start. Let's start walking towards and in the kingdom of God. Let's do this. It's a beautiful thing. When Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, it's not a command that has to be obeyed. It's an invitation to be received. Can I say that again? When Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, it's not a command that has to be obeyed. It's an invitation that gets to be received. He says, this is the way to the life that you are called and created to live. This is the life that is better than anything you could do on your own, anything this world has to offer. I'm not saying it's easier, but it will be far better, and it is good. It is good news. We always think Jesus and his kingdom was countercultural. He's going, no, 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 no. Let's go back to Genesis 1, 2. That's what the culture was. What the world has done for all these years is countercultural. I'm inviting you to come back to what God originally had in mind, to live in this kingdom, to live where the first are last and the servants are the greatest ones, and where we turn the other cheek and where we love our enemies and pray for them. I know it seems upside down, but, but the ones who are really blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit, and God just pours out his grace, and he invites us to live in that kingdom. Philip Yancey put it this way. Absorb the priorities of the kingdom of heaven and put its realities into practice. Jesus invites us into that. And the very next thing he'll say to some of his earliest disciples is, follow me. We'll get into that next week. Don't miss next week when he says, follow me, these incredible words. But he invites us into this kingdom. And he says, turn toward, repent. Turn toward, walk with. And start living the way God designed every single one of us to live in his kingdom. Can you imagine what it would be like for us if we'd say, okay. That's what his disciples did. Okay. They didn't always get it right. They didn't always believe. They didn't have perfect lives. They just said, all right. Let's do this. And that's what Jesus invites us to. He is, he is not only the subject of the book of Mark. He says, the best way to live is to have me as the subject of your life. In this transformational relationship, when I create all things new and invite you into this kingdom, this right-sized kingdom of God.